Spirits of French Lick is proud to introduce the Lee Sinclair Four Grain Bottled and Bond Bourbon. This four-year-age, double-pot distilled, non-chill filtered bourbon has creamy, round, and lifting notes with caramel and vanilla, followed by apple, mint, graham cracker, and ginger, as well as cardamom. The finish is slightly French walnut, resolving the sweet, fruity, almost ground cherry and white pepper. Our spirits are available for tasting and purchase inside the French Lick Winery and Distillery. Spirits of French Lick. Respect the grain. Please enjoy responsibly. This is Alan Bishop, head alchemist at Spirits of French Lick. Be on the lookout for our brand new Bottled and Bond Solomon Scott Rye Whiskey. Made from a mash composed of 65% rye, 35% corn, and 5% victory malt. This five-year-old, 100-proof rye whiskey is a throwback to early 1800s-style rye whiskeys of the Ohio Valley. Named after the legendary Daisy Spring Mill distillery owner, turned moonshiner Solomon Scott of Paoli, Indiana. Remember, drink responsibly and never drink and drive. Kenny Fuller for doing our theme songs for the Scotchy Bourbon Boys. We have a great podcast lined up tonight. Uh, I am Tiny of the Scotchy Bourbon Boys, and tonight we have a special guest, George Rose. Welcome, George. Glad to be here. All my friends call me Pappy G. I consider you a friend, so you can call me Pappy G. Well, I'm honored for that. I, I didn't want to just come out and start calling you Pappy G. Uh, you know, we've talked a little bit on Facebook and uh, from time to time. And, you you know, I'm definitely uh, interested in everything that you're doing. Uh, uniquely, uh, I, I think what, what you're doing is something uh, not a lot of people are doing. You know, there's some people out there doing versions of what you're doing, but not really. And so... Uh, we'll get into that as we go forward. Um, again, I'm Tiny. We're the Scotchy Bourbon Boys, www.scotchybourbonboys.com. Uh, check us out on the web uh, as far as uh, all the social media. With We're on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, TikTok, and Twitter. And we're also on all the major podcast formats. Remember, every single time that you're listening, please like, comment, and leave good feedback because that means a lot to us. Uh, it helps grow the podcast. Uh, tonight, we are doing Facebook Live. If you're watching the Facebook Live uh, you know, feed, uh, feel free to ask questions because I think tonight's uh, topic is going to be uh, as far as how uh 
Pappy G looks at uh, making moonshine. It's a very uh, serious, and um, he is doing things that uh, are, I think, it, are amazing and different. So we're going to get into that right away tonight. So why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are and what your background, where you come from? Uh like I said, my name's George Rose, but all my friends call me Pappy G. I'm from uh, Kentucky, uh, Central Kentucky. Um, come from uh, a long history of uh, backwoods moonshiners. My grandfather uh, was a well-known moonshiner in northern Kentucky. He actually uh, supplied moonshine to the speakeasies in Newport that were uh, during the prohibition days and uh, it's kind of funny because most of those speakeasies were run by the government which was also run by the mob <laughs> in, in Newport at the time if anybody knows one in the same on Newport they, <laughs> yep pretty much the same yep. uh, it's something that I wanted to do for years I was hoping that I could uh, talk my mother into giving me the family recipe, but uh, in her later years, she found religion, and every time I asked, I was told that's the devil's work. Stop asking me because I'm taking it to my grave. So I kind of started from scratch and kind of hit and miss trial and error, and throughout the years, I finally arrived on something that worked. And that I think is pretty special. That's awesome. Uh, I, I've got, I've got a bottle of it right here. It's pretty much, and uh, you're. We were talking. Uh, so when you started initially working on it, so you were technically a home distiller at the time. Would you say when you were working on it, or were you? a full out doing, you know, kind of moonshine using your family and friends for taste testing. A little bit of both. Uh, I started out, you know, in the backwoods and that's where I learned the craft and was able to, uh, I don't want to say master the craft because I don't think there's any true master distiller because we learn new things every day, new techniques on how to do things. I did experiment quite a bit with family and friends and kind of took it and ran from there. And uh, the, the Pappy G phenomenon kind of caught on. Everybody loves Pappy G and we kind of took it and ran with it. A uh, couple of people that uh, I had got into some Facebook groups, and I acted pretty stupid like I didn't know a whole lot. And I listened to what people had to say, and uh, I had a couple of mentors. Um, Jason Franklin was at Thunder Road, who is now with uh, Callahan down in Tennessee, was able to give me a lot of help and uh, a lot of pointers along the way. And finally got to the point where people knew the name. And I got a message one night, said, uh, you know, uh, the Hillbilly Jam is coming up in North Carolina. 
and that's kind of the who's who. Uh, it's a big party and everything, but anybody that's anybody in the moonshine world uh, pretty much goes there. I mean, from all over the country, we got folks coming from California, Florida, up north. And uh, I was invited to come down and uh, share my product and what little knowledge that I may have. And again, I tried to play it cool and my biggest fear, I took my nephew with me and I said, you know, I'm going down here. These guys, they may not like what I've got to offer. And, you know, it was a little unnerving, but uh, I went down and everybody accepted me and liked what I was doing. And uh, a few years later, when I first come up with the nine grain, uh, I took it down and uh, I guess the, the high point of my career, so to speak, is I was able to sit down with JB Raider and uh, I got JB to try it. And JB told me it was good. And I got ready to leave and JB grabbed me by my collar and he said, I'm going to tell you something, boy. He said, don't change what you're doing. He said, you've got it figured out. And I took that to heart. And then as I stepped off, he pulled me back again. And he said, I'm hoping that you listen to me. He said, don't, people are going to tell you this and that and the other. Don't change what you're doing. You're doing it right. And like I said, I took that to heart and I've stuck with that. Um, I don't do a lot, of, a lot of flavors or anything like that. I'll play around and experiment with some stuff. I've done some stuff with pot stills that people don't normally do uh, just to enhance things. But uh, this is my bread and butter, my pride and joy. And, uh, you, you know, Pop Cases is my baby. Pop was my grandfather. And uh, to pay homage to him, that's why we named it what we did. And uh, I, I stick with this. Uh, that's, that's, that is, uh, so I have met a couple of moonshine. Like, I don't know if you, have you met Amanda Bryant? She's, yeah, I know Amanda. Yeah. And she's, uh, I, I, I love her because she's such a promoter of everything and she's so supportive of everybody and she'll tell anybody anything. If she likes it, she's going to let you know. And, uh, that, that's where I first found out about the hillbilly jam you know, that was going on because she was headed down there. So I kind of, yeah. I, I kind of knew of that. So that's really a kind of a cool thing. And then to be told, you know, stay, stick with it because it's something, you know, something, what would you say unique and special, you know, that's what that. And so, all right. So you, you so how much time are you talking about? You know, what, what are we talking about years? Are we talking about you know, a year, a month, was it pre pandemic? Is it during the pandemic? I mean, what, what time are you talking about to get to where you were, you know, starting and experimenting to when you went to the, the festival and to then where you started, you know, now where you're, you know, what the direction that you're in now. Uh, I started experimenting probably 10 years before I ever went to the festival. And uh, the first, I guess, this 
The first festival I went to was either five or six years ago. Okay. So uh, I've got some time invested. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as, as you just said, um, it's not your main job. (laughs) You, you're doing, you're, you're actually, you have a, now is your job in the distilling industry or is it outside of the distilling industry? It's outside of the distilling industry. I actually work in the automotive industry. Okay. I, I mean, I meet so many unique pe- people, and definitely uh, most of, especially you know, I run a po- I run a podcast, and there's a like you said, there's a time investment, and it's a lot of your spare time. But you know, my six o'clock till four o'clock every single day, you know, I, I could do a lot more with this if this is what I was doing for a full time full-time gig like i know you could produce a lot more if you were doing it but at the same time uh it comes down to you still have to live and pay the bills right exactly (laughs) and uh okay so let's uh get into how did you meet you know meet up with royce and rebecca and kind of make that partnership and then what what kind of timing was that? You know, well, I mean, how, did you know Royce for a long time, and then just kind of he's you know he was you kind of had him tasted, or did you just did you meet him and then all of a sudden you know how did how did that work? I'm not even familiar. You know, I'm trying to look back, and uh, I was thinking about this the other day about the first time I had met Royce, and I really. I don't know, other than the fact that I went to the distillery one day just as a visit, and uh, I didn't know anybody over there. I just wanted to go over and check out the distillery, and uh, I, my name had uh, beat me to the building, so to speak, and uh, Royce knew who I was when I got there just by you know, by looking at me and we struck up a conversation and we've been good friends ever since. Uh, you know, he welcomed me in and showed me around and asked questions and uh, this and that. And uh, I don't, I need to change that. I, I make paddles uh, and stirring sticks for uh, different distillers. And Roy's contacted me and ordered a paddle. And I delivered the paddle. That's why I was there. Okay. I remember that now. Okay. So you, all right. So that's, that's uh kind of cool. That's, that's a cool story. And, and we had a similar um, experience. We were just going down to Kentucky bourbon festival. And, you know, when we go down, we like to stop at distilleries. We've been at old Pogue, you know, coming through Ohio and over the river and yeah. you know Neely is always right there, right on, right across the street from the Kentucky Speedway. So that year we 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 all met up there, and it happened that Rebecca was there, and you know it's like Royce, Royce and Rebecca are like when you get to know them and meet them and whatever, they're just like your own. They're they're almost like just family right away. How they treat people, you know, they're just Absolutely. so welcoming. And you just feel comfortable. And that's kind of what happened. She showed us around. And then uh, later we, I got him on the podcast through Zoom like this. I've been, we've been down there three, four times. Uh, we just uh, went down and uh, we're uh, thieving from barrels with Rebecca, some of the finished pro- finishing products that they're doing and whatnot. And that's when I was able to pick up the moonshine 
uh, you know, and so then let's go through how, the making of it. You know, once you met him and you guys had decided and he, it, it, I mean, did you kind of push it or did Royce suggest it? Royce said, every, you know, I'm proud of what I do and I take it everywhere I go and I offer everybody a drink. And, you know, I walked right up in Royce's distillery and said, here, I want you to try this. And uh, he liked it. And we never thought anything else about it. I, you know, everybody at the distillery tried it, liked it. And, you know, I started frequenting the distillery more often. Uh, we went over and actually did a event with uh, Steve Akeley and the ABD crew. And things kind of picked up from there. And finally, one day, I was over there doing something with him and Akeley, just bumming around pretty much. And he looked at me and he said, I think maybe it's time that uh, we look at doing something with your name on it and put it on the shelf. He said, you know, I, I like what you're doing. And we took it and, you know, once again, we took it and we ran with it. He didn't have to ask twice. Okay. So you went from your backwoods still to going into the distillery and I, 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 was it a lot? I mean, was it a lot? It was a larger still or were you, were you used to using backwood stills that were about that big? Now, dude, we went from a 40 gallon still to a 600 gallon still. <laughs> and it, 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 it's, you know, I, I said it, I, when we decided we were going to make the run, you know, for a week, I sat down every night and did the math and redid the math and trying to boost the recipe from, you know, basically a 50 gallon mash to a 600 gallon mash and have everything taste exactly the same and come out the same in the end. And, you know, I was scared to death. I was like, you know, I don't know if we could replicate this on this kind of scale. And I mean, it doesn't make sense to do it on a small still because we'll be here. You know, we just simply can't make a product to make it worthwhile, you know, putting it out public. So uh, Royce was helpful and he had some ideas, but uh, I mean, the, I can't say enough about the way they treated me and the way they continue to treat me. The idea behind this was, you know, I told Royce, I said, we're going to do this my way. And I'm going to have my hand in it from step one till it finally sets out front on the shelf. And they were great about that. Um, you know, <laughs> Roy Royce helped me with the equipment, obviously, because this was, you know, it's all modern cookers and computerized and this, that, and the other. But, uh, you know, it was my numbers, my measurements. We did it my way. Uh, I did the cuts, and it was just a fabulous experience. It's, it, it, it totally sounds like that. Uh, if it's any, um, what would you say, comfort? Pretty much, I've met a lot of distillers, and unless they're, um, unless it's Freddie No, 
or Fredno or what where they where they basically grew up around mass distilling. Uh, most distillers experience exactly what you experienced. It's an it's it's a it's like kind of like the six hundred gallon mash, and then distilling that brings it into reality. Like, holy shit, this is this is getting real. And then you also yeah. are that I I don't know what how to say it, but it seems like everybody who does that first batch at that level and they've taken it from you know even uh i think uh alan bishop said it uh, he was going to keep at copper and kings he went there and they hired him and they're just like do it you know they just bought all this stuff and they just like and he went the same he was the same way you know if if you screw up a 50 gallon still it's 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 something you know it's 50 gallons and, and it's like whatever but if you screw up 600 gallons, that's an awful lot of, of uh, you know, moonshine to be, you know, to try and then save. And that's in. I swear that every distiller I've ever talked about that have experienced it, they all on that first first runs or those first couple runs were just like so paying attention to detail, just like what you described. You know, you were really working the math to take it from where you were to where you're going and you wanted to work out. And it seems like because you you all are such a hardworking and proud of what you're making, that I've never heard of the first batch to not turn out. Now, I've heard of first batches not turn out at distilleries on new stills, but it's not the same thing. You know, the person who's running it is not, what would you say? They're not, they're not, this isn't their first go round and they're just working to get it right. And they know, you know what I mean? That kind of thing. But on this, you know, you, that stories I've heard probably 20, 20, 25 times. So it's kind of a cool story. Yeah. And yeah. And, and I'm, I'm going to probably step on some toes and piss some people off. And, but I don't care because it's nothing I don't say to their face. There's too many people in this business that sell their name. And they they sell their name, and it goes on a product that they never touch. And that's one of the things I refuse to do. And I told Royce, you know, right from the get-go, I said, you know, I'm the type of person, when I make a run, if I don't like the way it tastes, I'll throw the shit out. And he's like, well, that's kind of hard to do with 600 gallon. I'm like, well, we better get the shit right then. You know, <laughs> yeah. But because if it does, if it's not what I want it to be, you're not putting my name on it. You can market it as something else, but it's not going to have my name affiliated with. Right. I'm just I'm that picky, and um, that's just the way it had to be. And you know, I don't know if it was luck, skill, or a little bit of both. You know, thankfully it came out exactly. It actually came out a little better than what I had expected. There you go. Uh, it's also you partnered with the right people, so whatever you probably yes. were, like you said, they were open. You were every step part of the way, but then there's parts of the steps that they had been doing, so that while you were doing it, they probably assured you that this is this is going to be okay. <laughs> I, if, yeah, if, yeah. If you would, um, go ahead. I, I wouldn't have done it with anybody else. Okay. Um, again, you know, I wasn't going to sell the name 
and you know, just to get my name out there because I'm not that kind of guy. Uh, but I just totally spaced. That's okay. <laughs> I do that from time to time. We Old age is a bitch, man. No, it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're not going to put, you were just saying, you're not going to put your name on something uh, just to put your name on it. That's not what you're in this for. You want, when someone drinks this, you want them to be happy and think that this is quality and they're, and you, when they drink it, you want to be proud of what they're what they're drinking. I get it. I that's but that is the art and the artists that are in people that create spirits. You know that when you're talking about creating the spirits and uh, when you say that you don't want to step on someone's toes or or you you want you you'll step on people's toes and you'll say things and piss people off. But that if you if you if you were worried about that, then I wouldn't call you a moonshiner. <laughs> Because <laughs> moonshiners, they basically are exactly. in it at the raw level. I mean, you're at the basic level of making alcohol and spirits. Yeah, I mean, anybody can throw some shit together and make alcohol. I know I did it. Um, I tell people, you know, like I said, I've done some events and some interviews and stuff with ABD and with Alan and other people. And I, you know, when I introduce myself, I tell them, I said, I'm the best there is. And if you don't feel that way about what you're doing, then you don't need to be doing it. Now, am I really the best there is? Probably not. Uh, but yeah, but you're confident I'm, I'm, that you're. I'm giving. I'm confident that I've given out. You know, this is the best that I can put on the market. Well, and then we talked about it before. As a, you don't believe that there's a master distiller. Everybody's always learning, and I. I would agree with you 100% because your ingredients and everything that you're doing is straight up, is straight up with the ingredients and, you know, it's, it's changing. It's an evolving process. Every year, the, what, if you're, you're using corn, you're, and you use nine grains, those grains, I don't care what anybody says, they're not exactly the same from year to year. So you're gonna you've got nine moving parts just in the grains that you're using for this, you know, the different grains. So let's let's talk exactly let's talk about though the difficulty of using nine grains, cooking them, obtaining them, then cooking them, then fermenting them, because some of those grains that you that you you know you could go over them, but there's not a lot of sugar in some of those grains. So you're, you know, the barley comes in and then also um, you, you can talk a little bit about using the Fleshman's yeast, which is what you, I take it that your grandfather was using, correct? Or your great grandfather? Most likely he was using whatever was cheap and available at the time, which would have been plain old baker's yeast. And People argue this all the time, but there's also been studies done where you can pay big money for alcohol distilling yeast, and the yield is not that big of a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so do I want to pay $30 for a brick of yeast, or do I want to pay 10 And I think the, uh, the bread yeast works it uh gives a good flavor 
Um, so I've always I've stuck with it. I've tried the distiller's yeast, just didn't like it. Understandable. I mean, I, I it's uh, a lot of times uh, I smoke. Uh, I have a smoker, and you smoke meats, and you know it's kind of like some of the professional smokers. They might they they're using um, margarine instead of butter, you know, and yeah. I, you can't argue. Uh, butter's healthier. <laughs> than margarine these days but when it comes when it, when you use margarine and that you take that meat out of the smoker um most of the time if you use margarine it's going to taste better but then it's there you're just going to go well what do, what way do i want to be healthy you know <laughs> kind of thing but if you're smoking ribs or a brisket there's not a lot of healthy stuff going on anyway. yeah you're not thinking much about health food at that point but uh <laughs> You know, to me, that is health food, man. That's soul food. Oh, yeah. That is, that, that's good for the soul. Yeah. You know, good. a couple of shots of moonshine and some old pork butt. And that's a good day, man. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, the whole day while you're doing it, and then you finish up by the fire. <laughs> yep. 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 So, all right. Take up by the fire with your favorite bottle and go for it. Okay, so let's get into the the process because I've, you know, a lot of us out there, we've, you know, because of the popularity, like you talk about the show Moonshiners and the Moonshiners Master Distiller and everybody going through what's, go, the, what's going on with the show, I know a lot of people uh, that have gone through the process and had good results. And I've had people go through the process and it not be so good and it's like anything else, you know it's out there, but, and there's lots of different ways of, you see the backwoods of what they present. And it's always, what would you say? It's 100% a stage thing. We all, we all realize this at this point, but uh, what, as far as when you're, when you were producing and using the grains, just go, go through the process of how you originally were using the, doing it. And then to what you do at Neely at the 600, but go through the, actual process for people because that's one thing that i'm not clear on uh i understand a still there's no you know I've, i understand a pot still and i understand different stills keg steel stills i've seen that but it's like for making the moonshine when you're making the moonshine what what le- what are the different uh places where everything's added in you know like for instance you've got the grains but you also have molasses and and cane sugar in there so go through exactly kind of how you go you you make it as far as step by step with the process. Well, we start out with uh, I buy cracked corn, and I grind it down. Usually, I run it. I've got a small grinder, and I grind my own, and I usually run it twice through the mill to get it down to um, a pretty fine cornmeal, and then. I go ahead and grind the rest of the grains while I'm at it, but uh, I keep them separate. And I start uh, start out after I've got my cornmeal at the same time. I've got a big, huge pot on the burner getting water hot, and I bring it up to a rolling boil and slowly add the cornmeal in. And you've got to constantly stir it or it'll burn. And if you burn it, you're done. 
you just, well, turn the heat off and start all over again. There's no bringing it back. I don't care what you see on TV. You can't filter that shit out. Okay. And I get all of my corn in. And normally by that point, by adding the cornmeal in, I've got it down to about 180 degrees. I try to hold it at 180 degrees for about 45 minutes to an hour to try to cook out, uh, to break down the grain. Um, I use a alpha amylase in the beginning, which helps to convert and break those starches out. And then I'll cool things off to about 160, and I add the beta amylase, which converts the starches that we've converted out, converts them to sugar. That's when I add my molasses, and I add the other eight-grain mix into that. And I'll cook that for roughly 45 minutes to an hour. So when you when you talk about a molasses, what's the what is kind of you don't have to give me exact, but give me a is it a jar of molasses? Half a you know is it, I mean is it a is it ten jars of molasses? I mean how much molasses are you adding in? Are you adding in a substantial amount or just a accent kind of amount? It's on the big runs. It's obviously a lot more. I'll use a case, but in the whole scheme of things, a case is 12 jars and it's not really a huge amount. Okay. Uh, just enough for it gives an enhanced flavor profile. Okay. Uh, once we mix all that up, we transfer it over into the, well, we let that cool down, and then we add the sugar. I'm not a big sugar fan. I I use less than a pound of sugar per pound of corn. Most people will tell you if you ask them two pounds of sugar. To me, that's too much. You take a chance on getting hot liquor that way. So I, I get most of my sugar comes out of uh, – the grains, and then we back it up with a little bit of cane sugar. Get everything mixed up, move it over to the fermenter, uh, throw the yeast to it, and the magic begins. Yep. So, the 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 initially, what's breaking down the corn? What you add, the beta? Are those? Is that considered enzymes? Yeah. Okay. The, the alpha. Right. Amylase okay. is the enzyme that helps you convert the starch, helps break down your starches, and then the beta converts your starches to sugars. Okay. All right. So then now you've got it and you put it, how long do you let your fermentation? I, I know that commercially 72 hours is around the what they go the most. Some people go whatever, but... Uh, but I've also known, <laughs> I didn't even have any clue about natural fermentation at one point where you just put it out there and let the yeast crawl in and ferment it for, you know, like a month. <laughs> but so yeah. how, how long are yeah. you usually fermenting for? On a sweet mash, which is your first initial run with that mash, which is what this is made with, uh, seven days, normal. Okay. And I'm... It's, you can look at it and, and know when it's ready. 
the cap will drop. And you can stick your finger in it and you can taste it. If it's got a real bitter taste to it, then you know all the sugars have been consumed. Um, a lot of people rely on hydrometers and all the scientific equipment to uh, tell you, yes, you've converted all of your sugars or, you know, the big thing, if it ain't bubbling, it's done. Right. They're not, it's no longer, the yeast is done. They've done what they need to do. And uh, like you said, a lot of times when the cap drop, you know, drops, you know, you're getting close. You know, I've been at yeah probably the distilleries hundreds of times. So you, and then when they show you the fermenting, it's like you get to see all different types of processes. Um, What do you, what do you do with the, the the stillage what's you know what doesn't go into the still what do you do with that do you do the normal thing did you do the normal thing and give it to the crop or but when you're moonshine do you just is that just waste or do you use it like fertilizer i have no idea no no i mean if you're doing it anywhere other than a and some legal distilleries do a sour mash uh neely doesn't like to do a sour mash and you know, it's his house. I play by his rules. I, I don't have any issue with that. Um, he's actually got a deal where a local farmer comes by and picks up the mash and feeds the grain to his cows. Okay. At home, you know, I would rerun that mash three or four times. You know, I, I love the smell and the taste you get from a sour mash. I mean, I, I just, you know, that. That that almost the corn and the, everything mixed and then it's like almost oatmeal with like a nice sour. I, I could eat that for breakfast if I was working at the distillery. I love the. Well, when, when we first do our mash, before you add the yeast to it, we actually took a cup and dipped into it to test, it. and it was it was it had that oatmeal cookie. And the smell, it, it made you hungry for yeah. breakfast yeah. food, you know. It was just, it's incredible. Well, then, And that's how, that's how I know it's going to be good. You know, if I want to sit there and drink the mash before I even distill it, then I know yeah. it's going to make good liquor. Yeah, there you go. Um, I, I, and then, so... Then you distill it. Uh, what kind of uh, still uh, that do you use in the backwoods? I mean, what are you using? What describe the still? There's all different types of, but what are you? What? How do you do it? It's a run of the mill copper pot still um, that we used to use, and uh, I was one of the few people around that had a square worm. Um, you never hear of it. I did it out of convenience sake. I went and bought all this copper thinking I was going to be smart and be able to bend it, and I couldn't bend it. So I wound up going back to the uh, hardware store and buying a big package of elbows, and I made a square worm out of it. Okay. That's when I, I think it was Alan that spoke up and said, dude, this is unheard of. There's only like two or three places in the world that use a square worm. You know, where'd you come up with this? And I'm like, mm. <laughs> I just necessity. I made it to fit what I'd fit my needs you're on a mission no, i never really god. thought about it <laughs> god led you that yeah. way right based off of yeah. necessity and, yeah and my first deal was when people saw it there's like there is no way in hell this thing's gonna work and i had i bought an antique copper wash kit and i spent the time 
and I cleaned all the solder out of it and resoldered all the joints to get all the lead out of it. And then I made a manifold on top of it. And people were like, "Where in the, who in the hell does this? And basically, it was three, three-quarter-inch pipes coming up with the line that run all the way across that they fed into, which fed over to the worm. I've never run a thumper, never seen the need for a thumper. A lot of people love them. I ain't got nothing against them. I just don't need one. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and I graduated from that till, you know, once things got to moving pretty good, I went and bought another copper wash tub and did the same thing. But what was funny is when I brought it home, there was a tag on the bottom that uh, showed where it had been sold at the 1908 World's Fair in Chicago. And, of course, you know, what do I do with it? I take the 10 steps to it, cut it all to hell. And <laughs> everybody's like, dude, this is a hundred, hundred plus year old antique you're cutting up. And I'm like, well, it no. don't work for what I want the way it is. So, so now, I joined the two together. Now it's a hundred. Finally graduated. A hundred yeah. and some year old still. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Yeah. It's actually on display at Needles. And I keep telling him, I said, you need to put the history up there because it is kind of neat that, you know, some backwoods idiot bought this antique and then just destroyed it. So that's your, at Neely's, it. that's your still in the, in the video tasting room? Is that where it is? Uh, no, mine's in the gift shop. If you're going into the distillery from the gift shop, there's a wooden cabinet right by the door. It right. lines up on top. On top of there. Okay. It's got a, yeah, it's got a big emblem on the front that says high country. Okay. That's cool. That's cool. Um, so that's what you're doing there. Now you're on a 600 gallon pot stool, uh, still <laughs> stool, a pot still uh, at Neely and you run that first batch. And you're, you know, working and through the process. Now, that process, like you said, you were uh, fermenting for right around, like you said, seven days. Were, were you fermenting at that yes. le- that too? So you were there yes. pr- probably for about, what, two weeks for that first run where you went from start to finish where you did the cook, you did the seven days, and then, and, and obviously. Pretty close to that. Okay. So that run. Yeah, we actually, we double distilled this. So the first time we ran it was on one of their big stainless steels. Okay. And then, and we ran it down to like 20 proof, I think, coming off of that one. Uh, And then we let it set overnight and let it just kind of stew on itself. And then we ran it on the big copper steel they've got. Okay. And and we made our, our finishing cuts and made off of that. Yeah. All right. That's uh now uh let's talk a little bit now. You've got you picked the like the bottling aspect. Did you have that picked out and the logo before you actually made it? Was that all ready to go or did you do that like during and after? We had an idea. I had come up with my original uh, label was Happy G's Old Kentucky 31 Moonshine. 
And it didn't take us long when we got to looking at it to figure out that we were probably going to get a cease and desist order from somebody over having Pappy on the bomb. Yeah. <laughs> it's probably so our, our, our next our next thing was to go with uh our grandpa's photo and his name, which uh I thought turned out really good. The uh old Kentucky 31, everybody asked me all the time, where did you come up with the old 31? If you go back and look at license plates, Kentucky 31, 1931 license plate is that color green. Wow. <laughs> that's that's where the Kentucky 31 came in. I just I like that color green and it worked for the logo that I originally had. So I just substituted, you know, the pop cases and pop's picture and put it on that color. And uh, the folks that did our labels did a fantastic job. Yeah, uh, they think, come up with the idea of the gold leaf, and I think it really pops and stands out. Well, I love the aspect you've got the the jug, the little you know moonshine jug, and then you know you've got the picture on the back, <laughs> and then the, yep. the the labeling, and then you've got you know overall this gives you. Um, it's not like you're buying a, a bottle of whiskey. You're buying a, this gives you the feel that you're actually buying moonshine. It's kind of a pretty good cross between modern and you know to give you that uh, that to differentiate what you're buying. You know, it definitely is unique to the Neely, the whole Neely um, line. You know, there's nothing like it. It's different. Yeah. When you when you walk in and you look at the display case, it jumps out at you, and that's what I wanted. And you're right; it's got just enough of an old fashioned look that you feel like you're actually buying a little bit of history. And then, you know, the back of the label tells you a little bit of history that you're buying into. And I think it all tied together real good, pretty yeah. neat. Yeah. So. Let's uh let's talk about the last part where you were saying now it goes uh we we were talking a little bit before we got on the 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 actual podcast and you were saying that you're on shelves uh in locally in your area because you can they can do that plus you can go to the Neely Family Distillery where I picked this up and it's there on the Neely Family Distillery but then just you know kind of talk about what where what the challenge is as far as selling moonshine what you found i mean when you were doing the when you were doing it in the backwoods the people that you were dealing with knew exactly what you know how much you were making coincide with the demand and the people who were who were interested in it they know what the fuck moonshine is you know what i mean they're they're talking to you the only reason why they're talking to you is because you're they want the moonshine. I mean, they're ready. They've already, but this is different in the fact that you're uh, selling to more of the general public, the general drinking public. So, you know, talk about that because you talked about it and I didn't, I didn't realize it was kind of your perspective. It was new to me. Yeah. Um, I, I do want to say that this recipe, what's in, this bottle that you've got sitting here in front of you is the same thing you would have bought from me in a quart jar in the backwoods. Yep. 
And what we were talking about earlier is people are scared of moonshine. Everybody sees it on TV and it's the TV show has been great as far as bringing awareness that there's moonshine available out there. The problem is everybody jumped on the bandwagon and the big distilleries such as Sugarlands and such, they don't make moonshine. They have a pure green alcohol and they add whatever flavors they want to it. They put it in a jar. It's not moonshine. It's a, a high-grade ethanol fuel-based, <laughs> fuel ta- to me, fuel-tasting. You know, it's just a, it's a high-grade corn alcohol, and it doesn't have any personality to it. Uh, I don't like it. I've never liked it. And anybody that's ever had that moonshine, most people don't really like it. The only reason they say they like it is because it's popular. And they're scared. They, they won't go in a liquor store and buy moonshine. People don't do it because they don't understand what it is. They think what they're buying at a liquor store is going to be the same thing that they bought, you know, when they made their trip to Tennessee or someplace and went to one of the big distilleries down there where all they want is your money. And they don't understand that there's history and the time, the effort, and that this is actually a unique product. It's not a generic, you know, alcohol with 10 different kind of labels stuck on it. Right, right. And it's hard to get people past that. And most people don't know how to drink moonshine. Most people don't know how to drink bourbon. Yeah, most, you're right. Most people, you're, you're 100% right. But that, that general, let's just say 80% of the, of the, the people are drinking people, you know, of one form or another, 80% of the population. And of that 80%, probably 90% of them they're in it for a complete different experience than you're getting with bourbon or moonshine. You know, what, what if you're yeah. doing it right. If they're going to drink bourbon, they aren't going to appreciate it for what it is. They're going to drink it to get fucked up. And, I mean, it's just, I don't, you know, when you're young and that's a, a huge market when people are first drinking, they drink an awful lot of alcohol. <laughs> and, uh yeah. Their palates aren't aren't ready for half the shit that they're you know what they're doing. They're usually just trying to bypass their palate and get it in so that they can, uh, you know, replicate. <laughs> yeah, and you know, and, and I forget about it. And I actually had my niece was over, and I gave her. And she drinks a lot. Um, Social drinker. I mean, don't get me wrong. She's not an alcoholic or anything. But, you know, she she likes bourbon. She likes moonshine. And she had taken a a drink and kind of made a weird face. And I'm like, nobody's ever told you how to do this. You know, once you learn how to drink it, you'll appreciate it. Take a very small sip. Let the alcohol kill the chemical receptors 
in your mouth. Then take a drink and you'll enjoy the flavor profile. You'll get the different textures, the different flavors. It's a whole different experience. You know, most people take their first drink and it's like, oh my God, this this is horrible. Uh, well, yeah. even when and it is, even when, yeah, the, the palate shock that, you know, cause I taste a shit ton of, of whiskey and you don't even realize it until even when you're in this to the, for the first couple, for, for the first couple of years that let's just say you, you get through the palate shock and then we do the tasting, right? The tasting yeah. might last us five, 10 minutes through the podcast and then we're done. And, uh, and then you don't really go back to it again or whatever. But if you taste, you pour some bourbon and you get you through the pouch or, or this, and then you sip on it and you sip on it over an hour, the taste of that whiskey or that moonshine isn't going to be the same an hour later. It's not. No, it evolves in not. the glass. A lot of the ethanol that was in there burns off and um yep. the nose on anything while it's been sitting and it's evaporating a little bit in your glass and starts sticking to the edge of the glass the nose becomes way more prevalent after you've drank half of it than it was when you everybody likes to pour it and the first thing they do is nose it but it's just yeah. fresh in your fresh in there it's still letting off the ethanol that from being in the bottle shook up or heated or whatever and then you set it down, and now you're tasting it. But if you revisit it 10 minutes later on the nose, you're going to pick up a lot more of those flavors that weren't there initially. And so that's one of the things that I learned uh, through just osmosis of tasting, that your, your experience from start to finish, if you let give it time in the glass, is going to be almost like a ride. <laughs> you know? It starts yeah, off one way yeah, and finishes exactly. another. It's, yeah, it, it gets smoother as you go, and it's not because you're getting drunk. It's because your palate is adjusting, and you know, you've know you gotten rid of those chemical receptors, and now you're you're actually tasting the real product. Yeah. And, you know, people love to do shots, and the only thing you're going to do if you're doing shots of moonshine is wind up on the floor. Yeah, and that's usually that's usually for a good amount of people what they're looking to do. <laughs> it's like yeah. desired effect check. <laughs> Cuz I I've, I've yeah. seen and, the worst is, you know, I feel I remember my dad was a Jack Daniels drinker. And he would do it on the rocks, he would do it neat. He liked Jack his Jack Daniels. Um he was a weekend um borderline alcoholic. Uh I wouldn't say he ever was addicted to it, but it caused some problems, you know. But uh, since then, he stopped drinking and he's fine. But overall, um, he when I would try and drink Jack Daniels with him as a young man, my only thing was to figure out how to get it from the glass, touch my lips and skip my whole palate and get it into my stomach without tasting it because it was hot. I mean, whoever thought 80 proof would be, uh, you know, I look back and I'm like, 80 proof is hot. You know, I drink, I'll take a sip of Jack Daniels these days 
And I can't believe that my palate would be go on fire. And it was just, it was the time period because there wasn't a lot of high proof whiskeys that, you know, right. in, the, in the 80s. But at the same time, I, my palate was young. There's no doubt about it. I hadn't killed enough taste buds to mellow out. You got, it's almost like you got too many. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And moonshine is meant to be sipped. Uh, there's, I don't know if it's because it's a clear liquor. It does things to the human body that bourbon doesn't. And it does it a whole lot faster. Mm-hmm. Well, you've got, you got to remember, there's an aspect of that molasses that, and the sugar. And for me, even, um, I don't know what Irish whiskey does, but I can have four barrel proof pours of bourbon and it, it can be like, I might get a little bit, you know, I could feel it a little bit or whatever. But if I drink four 80 proof pours of Irish whiskey, my wife's asking me, why the hell did I drink too much? You know, that kind of thing. And it's the delivery mm-hmm. system of the Irish whiskey opposed to that the the filtering of the alcohols through the barrel and the bourbon and you know what I mean it's a different composition and that composite composition delivers the alcohol quicker on me than bourbon does opposed to Irish whiskey but at the same time moonshine's the same thing it's kind of like if you have a mixed drink if you're drinking mixers with soda or whatever that sugar that sugar Delivery system seems to just speed up getting drunk. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. And yeah. that's, you know, if you're going to be drinking mixed drinks, you're usually running around at a, you know, and everybody's dancing. And so you're just kind of trying to forget everything. So <laughs> that's how mm-hmm. I am with mixed drinks. And, right. The main thing about moonshine, as long as, you know, we're sitting here bullshitting, you know, you can drink all night long. You stand up to go to the bathroom. That's, that's when you realize, shit, I'm in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it can sneak up on you. There's no doubt about it. I mean, now what made you, uh, I initially, so you're at 100 proof, right? Yes. So were you always at 100 proof? That's where, that's what I find as the, the breaking point. Anything over 100 proof is too hot. Anybody that tells you, oh, I've got to have 160, 170 proof when I drink moonshine is full of shit. Yeah, they have no taste buds. All, all the, yeah, it's, it's, it's just, too just, hot to enjoy. Once again, it's almost like you're drinking grain alcohol. You know, it's almost like what, you exactly. know, it's not, yeah, there's no doubt about it. And, and what it does to your liver isn't a good thing at that level. There's no, I mean, that's like at a, you know, some people. No. If someone says they do it, they probably did it once. Ended up, you know, in yeah. the hospital, but they did it. <laughs> yeah, they did it. And uh, but you know, hundred proof is good. This particular moonshine drinks like a eighty-five to ninety proof. It doesn't drink like a hundred proof moonshine, but you know, it is legitimately there. Yeah. Now, when you were proofing initially, did you uh, do you have the skill to basically shake it and look at it and tell what proof it is? Or <laughs> I, I can get fairly close. Uh, that's one of the things where I do rely on technology. I use a hydrometer 
just to make sure. Nothing wrong with that. I'm sure a lot of people on TV do the shaking, but they've already hydrometered it before they shook it, you know. But, you know, it is a scale. There's no doubt about it. But uh, so when you were coming at, did you already know before you did this batch that 100 proof was your sweet spot? Was Or did you find yes. that out on the uh, when you were proofing down? Did you try, okay, when you were doing this, the large run, did you proof it down slowly to see where, that if it changed or if there's any different and you still came up with the 100? Or did you just no, go right I, to 100? I knew in the back, yeah, I had been doing 100 in the backwoods for so long, I, I knew where the sweet spot was. Yeah. And this, I, I knew this wasn't going to be any different because it was just a larger version. And it was all working the way it needed to work. Yep. Okay. All right. Well, um, that's great. The history and everything you gave me. I mean, I do usually a little bit of research on people before before I usually come on. And I would have to say you've done a really good job of not, um, like, it's kind of like you're the first person that, uh, it, there's not a lot of what's out there. Now, as far as buying it, or purchasing it, you can find it, right? But at the same time, it wasn't like you you were finding it all over the place like you do with most stuff, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I wish it was a little more accessible for folks, but, you know, maybe someday we'll get there. Um, and, you know, that'll be great if we do. Uh, I never figured this would be my second retirement. This is truly a, a labor of love. Um, you know, I'm just, uh, I, I'm very thankful that I had the opportunity to do it. If, uh, you know, if it never goes anywhere, then so be it. Uh, it, it is available in Kentucky. It's available at the ABV shop in uh, St. Louis, Missouri. And uh, uh, I right. think that you can probably order it from the distillery. Mm-hmm. Um, and they can get it to you that way. Well, I would say that you've got you've gone the next step to it being your second retirement kind of fun uh, endeavor because uh, the fact that when we were talking and you had been putting it out there initially, I had already gotten it. So, I mean, the word kind of has spread and I'm up here in Ohio. So we're, we're putting the word out and hopefully, uh, you know, you get into your, your other batches, start producing more and it goes, it goes further and further. But I know you love doing it, so no matter what, you'll just keep doing it. That's for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I will say this first batch, the one thing, the labels were too big. They don't, the labels should have been about a quarter inch shorter. Okay. Both ways. So the next batch that comes out will have a slightly different look to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see why you had so, no choice of making it any smaller because yeah. it went to the, the the type goes right to the edge. 
But at the same time, yeah, but they, I, they can actually they can actually shrink that down. They just have to make the print a little smaller to <clears throat> to make it easier actually to put the label on. Mm-hmm. Um, we're probably going to make that change, even though this label is big. I still like it because it's different. Yeah. Did you um? Uh, how many bottles were there in the total of the first batch? How many did you end up making? I'm thinking there was 487 bottles. Okay. I think we made the first run. Not bad. It it made a whole lot more than anybody expected. I could I can see that. Especially, you know, well, I I suppose <laughs> Yeah, like you said, it um with some of those grains, they don't yield all the sugar. You know that that you know that the corn does. You know the other grains are yeah. more more uh, one of the things. Now, when you were actually distilling, a lot of people talk about when you do that pot dis- that that it's going through the still. Uh, some of those grains can clog. You know, it causes issues in the still. But you had no issues, correct? Distilling it. No, um, on the big steel at Neely, of course, again, everything is steam powered over there and it's a steam jacketed copper steel. So there's no chance of scorching anything, uh, you know, or anything like that. And, you know, on any steel, it's the same thing. You got to know how much to put in. You know, you put too much in, you take a chance on it puking over into your run, blowing stuff out the, you know, the end. So, you know, we, we played it safe and, you know, we didn't have any issues like that. Okay. Excellent. So how many runs? So it was just one run on the 600 gallon still, or how, how much did you have to run it through that still based off the mash? How much, how many times did you have to do the sweet? You know, did it was it one run or did you do three or four runs? Not rerun. No, we no, we we were able to do everything in one run. In one run, uh, they're set up with a, a six hundred gallon cooker that feeds to a six hundred gallon fermenter, which feeds to a six hundred gallon stainless that feeds into an eight hundred gallon copper. All right, there so, you go. You know everything. Everything was one smooth run, the same way I would do it here. Okay. Excellent. Well, I appreciate you uh, joining us. Uh, you know, it's great to finally talk. <laughs> and you were, yeah. and it was very, very informative. And I look forward to in the future meeting you in person because I think we should be able to run into each other the more I come down there, hopefully, you know, and pour one back together. Absolutely. All right, everybody. Uh, I think that was a fantastic informational uh, podcast. Uh, George is doing some spectacular things. Uh, We look forward to everything you do in the future. And uh, with that, we're uh, www.scottgbourbonboys.com. We're on all the major podcast formats. Plus, we're on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter and TikTok. And uh, remember, everybody, uh, good bourbon, good moonshine equals good friends and good times. And remember to go out 
and live your life dangerously. Little Stevo is going to take us out. Hold, I'll get that going. Scotchy Bourbon Boys fans, this is Alan Bishop, Indiana's alchemist of the Black Forest. So I'm tuning in here today to tell you all about the One Piece at a Time Distilling Institute channel on YouTube. If you're at all interested in the art of distilling, whether it be home distilling or professional distilling, and the intense geekery that goes into that process, then check out the One Piece at a Time Distilling Institute on YouTube. I promise you're going to learn something you didn't know before about the arts.